Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10, technically chapter 9, verse 38, will be where we will begin this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and aim to finish the book of Nehemiah, Lord willing, in the month of August. So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, through all of chapter 10 for this morning's message. I've entitled this sermon, A Firm Covenant to a Faithful God. That's exactly what we see the people of Israel do in this text. It's a firm covenant they make to a very faithful God. In Nehemiah 9.17, we read the text that I began our Lord's Supper service with. You are a God ready to forgive Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. That's what the present day Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 9 pray to God about the ancient day Israelites that preceded them. This morning as we jump into this, I want to ask a question as we begin. What is your response to God when you become acutely aware of His forgiveness for your sins. What's your response? What's your response to God when you become acutely aware of His perpetual sovereignty over your life that sometimes seems so uncertain to you? What's your response to God when you become acutely aware of His perfect provisions in your time of need? Of His sovereign protection in your time of vulnerability? Do do you have a time when joy, peace, and love overcome you because of this awareness? Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? You need one. You need many. The Israelites had one in this text. The question is, have you ever tasted that authentic genuine heart worship that pours out of you in such moments when you're acutely aware of God and all that He is for you in your life. Well, I'm going to ask you to look into Nehemiah chapter 10 with me this morning so that we can look at the Israelites do this very thing. And it is my aim that we would learn from this and that we would become imitators of these Israelites and we would respond to God like they did this morning. This text I can chop up in three ways. First of all, I'm going to share with you the reason these people make a covenant with God. Then we're going to take a look at the people of this covenant. And then lastly, we're going to look at the contents of a covenant that these people made in writing with their God. Let's begin with the reason for the covenant. Look at verse 38 of chapter 9. Ezra writes what Nehemiah recorded in his journal. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Let's just stop right there for a moment. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Got to ask a question. Because of all of what? Because of all of what are they making this firm covenant in writing? 
Well, because of all of this refers to last Sunday's sermon. You can get it online, but let me give you an overview of it right here. Because of all of this refers to three truths that we unpacked last week. The first one is this. These people came to realize the sovereignty of God in His eternal existence. Nothing made God. He always was and always will be. His name is forever, we said last week. They also understood that He is the creator of everything, visible and invisible. He also, they told us last week, was the God who elected Abram to be the father of His people. He also is the God who redeemed these people from their imprisonment, their bondage in Egypt. He's the God who forgave them. He's the God who was merciful. So one of the reasons that these people say because of all this we make a firm covenant is because they acknowledged the sovereignty of God. There's a second reason. The second reason is found in verses 6 through 25 of chapter 9. That's where we were last week. They realized the sins that they and their forefathers had committed against this sovereign God. Look at verse 26 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, in spite of all of this sovereignty and all of this election and all of this redemption and all of this forgiveness, nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. It's because of those great blasphemies that they're now making a firm covenant. That's the second reason. Then the third reason is found in verse 31. Look at 26 and 31. Both of these verses begin with the word nevertheless. It's an amazing truth that nevertheless applies to all of the rebellion of the people in verses 26 through 30. Nevertheless, in verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Because of this, your sovereignty, our sinfulness, your mercy, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing with you, God. That's what's happening right here. You are sovereign. We are sinful. You are merciful because of all this. We make a firm covenant with you, God, in writing. All of us, as we shall see in a moment. So we see here that these Israelites don't merely confess their sins to God, though that is critical and very, very urgently needed in this moment. But they don't stop there. They also go to great lengths to repent of their sins. It's one thing to confess them, but it's another thing to cease them. We must do both. They had to do both. We see in chapter 9, verse 2, that their repentance included separating from foreigners. And as I made exactly clear last week, this is not a racial separation. This is a religious separation. They separated from foreigners who worshipped pagan gods. 
And they were pure people worshiping one God and yoking themselves to the one God of the Bible. And so here we find, yes, confession, but absolutely repentance. They turn away from their sin and they turn back to their God. There's something to be learned there. Let's confess with our tongues our sins and let's repent and return to our God and leave that sinful way behind. And so to do so, they found it fit to not just say these things, but to make a firm covenant in writing with their God. So there's the reason for the covenant. Let's look next at the people of the covenant. Still reading in verse 38, after they pledged to make this firm covenant in writing, on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In verse 1 of chapter 10, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, and it goes on and on and on. It goes through 83 names of men. These are heads of households. These are Levites. These are priests, lay leaders in the church. Nehemiah is one of them in the priests. There's 21 priestly names. Ezra, you wonder where his name is in that list? Well, his name would be embedded under verse 2, Sariah. He's from the family, the household of Sariah. There's 21 priests. There's 17 Levites. There's 44 lay leaders, as I count them. There's 83 leaders that are fixing their names, sealing their names to this covenant. And I just want us to stop for a moment and celebrate the unity that is found amongst these leaders. That's something to be celebrated. That's something to admire. That's something to imitate. In the modern church, in the New Testament church that we are a part of. The leaders signed this document as one cohesive body. And it took agreement amongst these leaders in order to lead the people at large to also submit to God and worship God through this act of covenant writing. In verses 28 through 29 of chapter 10, we watch the people follow the leadership that we see in verses 1 through 27. Look at verses 28 and 29. There we see that the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. The leaders, 83 of them, start this, and the people follow unanimously, united as one man, as we saw back in Nehemiah 8, chapter 1. Look at the unity. Men, wives, sons, daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. We understood that a few weeks ago to include little ones, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 31. This whole congregation of people are brought together as one man under the leadership that is acting as one man. 
And they are honoring and worshiping God together. I want to celebrate the beautiful harmony that we see right here in this text of Scripture. We have leaders biblically ruling. And we have followers biblically submitting. This is beautiful. What a picture of God's people. May all the churches of our modern day look like this. Biblically ruling leaders and elders. Biblically submitting congregants and members. Working in unison to worship God faithfully. This is exactly as it should be in Old Testament Israel. And this is exactly how it should be in an autonomous local New Testament church. Like Rocky Point Baptist Church. May we imitate this. We see here Proverbs 29.18 in action. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. There is prophetic vision here by the leaders. And there are people following and they are casting, not casting off restraint. They are restraining themselves and the device that they restrain themselves with is not the leaders, the Word of God. Which brings me to the question. How did these people get here to this state of heart and mind? They didn't just wake up one day and say, let's write a firm covenant to our God. They didn't get here quickly. Something happened to these people. And we need to know what that is because we need that to happen to us. So how did these Israelites get to this point? Well, they got here at the first of Nehemiah chapter 8. For over there they asked Ezra, a man who was studied in the law of God, they asked him to come and to stand on a wooden platform, and he read from the book of the law for six hours. And there were priests and Levites walking amongst the people, continually reading and making application. Look at verse 8 of Nehemiah 8 real quick. There it reads, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly... And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Vital words right there. This is how the people got to this moment of making a covenant pledge to God. The book was read. The book was understood. The book was applied. And now the people respond to the book. They respond by writing a firm covenant. This is the power and this is the purpose for which God gave us His Word. This is the power and the purpose of the Word of God. and He intended it to do these kinds of things to people like us. This is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, we need that done to us. And that's why God gave it. God's people received God's word 
And that's how they got to this moment of covenant making. They did not receive the words of man. Let me show you what that looks like. Because God spoke against the words of man. Over in Jeremiah 23, starting in 16. Listen to what God says. He says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of Lord, quote, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, quote, No disaster shall come upon you. And God here says, You do not listen to those words. Those are false prophets. You listen to my word. And it will come to you through a man, a faithful man. But it is my word that you must listen to. God said also in Jeremiah, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. God warns us, we do not need Prophets, we do not need pastors who proclaim peace, peace, when we continually despise the word of the Lord or when we stubbornly follow our own hearts. We don't need that. We need the word of God and he has given it. So the leaders of Israel did not proclaim a false peace. They exposited the law of God word for word. And the people were affected by this word because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierced all the way down to their souls and confronted them right where they were in their sins. And they, at the end of the day, liked it. They liked it. And they respond really, really well. We'll look at that in a moment. I'm going to make an application here for just a second before we move on. God's people must have God's word. God's people do not need man's word. Got to get this right. Because it's getting made wrong all over the place, all over the world, in America and in Africa. We see it everywhere in those two continents. There are many modern day pastors, missionaries, who comfort people who despise the word of the Lord. And they tell them, hey, you're good. You're moral. You define truth. And as long as you're faithful to what you believe, you're a good person. There's people who complain that their pastors don't make them feel good about themselves. When a true pastor's goal is to make them feel good about God. And if we feel good about God, guess what? Because we're followers of God, we're going to feel good about ourselves. The Christian life is not a beat down. But we don't elevate man and feel good about ourselves. No, our focus is on God, the God of the Word. So we utter His words to one another. So that we magnify Him and we don't despise Him or His Word. And it is my prayer 
the Rocky Point Baptist Church will always have pastors. Always have pastors who do not say peace, peace when there is no peace. That's a decision we have to make together. We will always call men who are faithful to God's word. Well, let's now look at the contents of the covenant. There's the people of the covenant. We've seen the purpose of the covenant. Now let's finish out with the contents of the covenant. Look in verse 29. We, we see that the leaders led the people to write this covenant. The people follow and they're all united in doing it. In verse 29 it says, We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. There's two elements to the contents of the covenant that these people make with God. The first one is a general commitment to the law of God. That's what we've just read. They pledged to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. That is broad and general. That is a people saying we will come under the authority of God's book. And it will drive our thoughts and our words and our actions. Now the people of Israel have a history of pledging to obey God's rules and commands and statutes and precepts. And it isn't pretty. When God first gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, the text tells us that in Exodus 24, Moses came down from the mountain. And he told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they do it? Man, they broke it quick in the wilderness. They didn't let the grass even grow under their feet or the dust get into their sandals. They were instantly defying their pledge, their oral pledge to God. You know, throughout the history of Israel, from that point forward, the people of Israel are known as covenant breakers over and over and over again. The last time that we see them making a covenant is over at the end of Second Chronicles. In chapter 34, verse 31, this is when Josiah, they found the law of God lost in the temple. And they dusted it off and they read it and they tore their clothes and they were shocked because they learned all the ways that they have been living against God's law. And we read in 2 Chronicles 34, 31, the king, that is Josiah, stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And then it says this. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. You got leaders leading, followers following. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. 
For how long? Tragically, not long. They broke that covenant. They broke that covenant and they were exiled to Babylon. And when Persia took over, they experienced 70 years of exile away from their homeland because they broke this covenant that they entered into with God. So that is why now they're here yet again making yet another covenant because they are covenant breakers and they need to renew their pledges to God. Now, here's the most important thing I'm probably going to tell us this morning. You lean in on this part. I want to look at this covenant, this general broad covenant that they're making. And I want us to understand this morning what this covenant is and what this covenant is not. This covenant is not, is not a covenant of works. They are not doing this to earn God's forgiveness or favor. Even in the Old Testament, this is not a covenant of works. For you see, this is the 24th day of the seventh month. And significant is the 10th day of the seventh month. Because on the 10th day of the seventh month, that day is called the day of atonement. That's the day where the people get the forgiveness of God through the sacrifice of an animal as a substitute for them in their sins. The blood of that animal is shed for their sins on the 10th day of the seventh month month. This is the 24th day of the seventh month. So they're not doing this covenant. They're not writing this out and entering into this to get God's forgiveness in his favor. They already have it. God already made a provision for that. They are not trying to earn God's favor saying if we only obey him more, he'll bless us in forgiveness and we'll be good with him. No, they became good with him through the day of atonement. They are doing this covenant. They are writing this out because they have God's favor and forgiveness. They've already got it. That's significant. They have God's favor. They're aware of it. Therefore, in Nehemiah 9.32, they say, You are our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So this is not a covenant for forgiveness. This is a covenant for another purpose. They haven't kept their covenant they pledged to God with Josiah, but God did. And it's only because of God's covenant faithfulness that they were willing or even able to enter into this covenant. So, this is a covenant of response. The responding to God's covenant faithfulness. They're not working their way to be right with Him. They're responding to the fact that they are right with Him because of His covenant faithfulness. So I'm going to ask us a question this morning. Is there a place for such a covenant amongst us 
at Rocky Point Baptist Church? Is there a place for us to enter into a firm covenant in writing? Is a New Testament church a local congregation of God's people? Should we covenant with one another and God to live out our Christian faith together? It's a really good question. Does God's people here enter into a covenant of response to His covenant faithfulness? What would keep us from doing such? We covenant with our spouses in a wedding ceremony. We did that here this last Saturday a week ago. If we would do that with a spouse, why would we not do that with our God? Why would we not do that with one another as church members? Why wouldn't we have covenant membership in God's church? It's a good question to ask. Today, when you look around, there's not many churches that have covenants. They're starting to come back. In the 1940s and 50s, covenants started disappearing from the landscape, in America at least. Why? Why were they dismissed? A lot of reasons out there, I'm sure. Rugged American individualism. Private Christianity. My faith with my God is my business. It's none of your business. That's not New Testament church. Your faith with our Christ is my business, and my faith with Christ is your business. Because we are the body of Christ. It's why covenants disappear. Today, when you mention covenant relationships with God and the church, people balk at this as if it's something strange when it's only been strange for about 60 years. Got 1,900 years that it was common. Interesting. Should a local church have a membership covenant? Well, I would say no. If it is used as a means of earning favor with God. No way. It's a covenant of works. And we've nailed that already because we've already had the Lord's Supper. There's where the work was done to grant us forgiveness for our sins. There's where the atonement, a blood atonement, was made that made us right with God. And so we don't do a covenant to get salvation from God. We remember the new covenant in the blood of Christ where our salvation comes from. But I would say to the question, should a local church have a membership covenant? I would say yes to that if it's a way to pledge and instill our devotion to God who has been so faithful to us on the cross of Christ and His resurrection. And I think then we would be in the spirit of these Old Testament Israelites who entered into a firm covenant in writing. So I put this out here. I'm coming to you from the text. And I'm going to put this out here and say that this is something for us to think about and to pray about and to discuss amongst ourselves over the coming days. Is there a place amongst us for a covenant in writing as members of a local church formed out of the New Testament model? Well, let's move on now to the specific commitments that we find. We looked at general commitments to obey and honor God's law. Now we get three specific commitments. The first is this in verse 30. 
we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is a commitment to no intermarriage. Not because of race. No such law against interracial marriages anywhere in God's kingdom. But this is because of religion or faith. There is one God who was and is and is to come. There are no gods before Him. None will come after Him. And we are not to give our sons and daughters ourselves to someone of another faith, another religion that worships a false god. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we are not to be unequally yoked to a non-believer. It's the same principle here. And so in the Old Testament, they were not to yoke with pagan God followers. And in the New Testament, we are not to yoke to people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Marriage is reserved for Christian to Christian marriage in the church of Christ. And so the key is from this this covenant, this piece of the covenant is God's design for marriage. It matters more than our desires for marriage. And we need to bring our marriages under the sovereign authority of God as he has defined them to be. The second specific one is found in verses 31, uh, just 31. It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Much to be said there, but let me boil it down to this. That is a pledge in this written covenant to not be a Sabbath breaker. This is exactly why these people were exiled for 70 years to Babylon. They violated 70 Sabbaths. And God did the accounting to the day. And he said they will endure 70 years of Sabbaths to recoup what I demanded of them. Each seventh year. And so they pledged to surrender their time to God and rely on Him in faith to provide on these Sabbaths. They gave God their time. And so the key is God's design for time matters more than our desires for time. We need to be a people that give our time to the Lord. One of those times is Sunday morning at 9 and 10, 15, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not the Sabbath. Christ is the Sabbath. But we are to devote time, weekly, often, to our God. Here's the third one. Verses 32 through the end of the chapter. There we see that they pledged to God to make offerings to the temple operations. I'm not going to read all of that text today. They pledged financially their tithes and their offerings. And they pledged to give those things to God in temple worship. They also pledged materially the first fruits and the firstborn of their crops and their livestock to give to God in temple worship. 
to comply with God's law as written in the book of Moses. And the key point here for them is that God's design for their money and possessions matters more than their desires for their money and possessions. And we've got much to learn there too, don't we? All that we have financially and materially is owned by the sovereign God who created it. He's entrusted it to us. We are stewards. And in our stewardship, He only asks us to give a portion back to Him. And these people failed to do that in the past. And so they're pledging to acknowledge God's ownership and their stewardship. And so they reorient their lives to the law of God. These are the specifics of the covenant that these people entered into with God. And it did not neglect the overall law because they, commit, they committed generally to abide by all of God's words. These happened to be things that they struggled with that they noted specifically in this covenant. So let me conclude like this. <clears throat> I want to take us back to the very, very beginning of this message. Nehemiah 9.17 You are a God ready to forgive. You are a God gracious and merciful. You are a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who does not forsake those who sin against you and your word. That's who I stand here this morning to project to you from His word. And this verse is nowhere more evident than on the cross of Christ. It's found in the Old Testament, written some 450 years before the cross of Christ. But that verse, a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, is most evident on a hill in Calvary in around 33 A.D. with a son named Jesus Christ hanging on it. Christ was our substitute. His blood atoned for our sins. And through belief, we are forgiven. Period. Through belief. Do you believe this morning? Can you say that you have a relationship with this God who is ready to forgive and who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger? You can only say that to Him if you believe in His provision of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And with that, you can say with me, our God is great, He is mighty, He is the awesome God who keeps covenant and has steadfast love. That's what we say every time we say we believe in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God kept His covenant. And man, there are many. He made a covenant with Adam, Noah, Abram, Moses, David. All of these covenants find their yes and fulfillment in His Son, Jesus Christ, who issued in and ushered in the new covenant in His blood. So with this, what should our response be to this truth? You've got to respond to this God. He invites you to respond. He beckons you to respond. What should our response be? Well, 450 years before Christ, 
the people of Israel were so faithful to commit themselves to God long before this new covenant came. We are a people 2,000 years on the other side of that new covenant. Why wouldn't we, looking back upon what they were looking forward to, also be willing to enter into such a covenant? How much more faithful should we be on this side of the cross in the empty tomb? Well, I'm going to say that whether in writing or not, whether in writing or not, will you today pledge to God to keep His commands and rules? And there's only one way you can do that. By believing in the one who did. Because you won't. You'll be just like the Israelites. I will be just like the Israelites and I will break it. But by believing in the one who kept the covenant to perfection as a substitute for us we can make good on that pledge and you can do this by striving to honor the law keeper Christ by imitating him in obedience after you believe in him that's the word of the Lord to this morning for us he is ready to forgive He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not forsake His people. And He does so in Jesus Christ. Pledge your life to Him. Maybe in writing. But pledge your life to Him. And He will give you eternity. Father, we pray to You this morning out of hearts of acknowledgement that you are a stunning, magnificent God. You're like no God a man could ever invent. You've had grounds to forsake us, condemn us, but instead you have been long-suffering with us. And instead you forsook your Son in our place. Father, for those of us that believe this this morning, I pray that you would prompt us to covenant with you and pledge to you that in the work of Christ and belief in it, we would strive to obey your very commands as you've given them. For the one here this morning, Father, that does not believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you have opened their eyes and their heart to the fact that you are a God of wrath against sin, but a God of mercy against sinners. And I pray that they've seen the provision of Jesus Christ and your faithfulness to deliver your people from death in Him. Draw them to you this morning, Father. Save them from their sins. And lead them on the way everlasting. You're a good God worthy of our time and attention. And we are eager to come back to You again and again and again until that day when Christ comes once and for all and we will be in His and Your presence forever. Amen.